Hello, listeners. I'm so excited to share this episode that I made with my friends and colleagues, Winnie, Jamie, and Sarah, who all graduated from Pratt Institute in 2013. They were so honest about their experiences as new professionals in the dance therapy field. The openness that they offer in this episode reveals the complexity of our work and how much trial and error is really involved in the process. I think that this is so valuable because there are a lot of DMT presentations that, to me, sound very clean-cut and polished. And while I think it's great to have such beautifully constructed stories of our work, they sometimes make me feel like I'm the only one struggling when I have challenging cases or just feel lost about my own identity as a dance therapist. For the more general listeners, I will warn you that this is very dance therapy focused, but it offers so much valuable guidance on how to creatively approach feeling misunderstood in your position, asserting yourself in the workplace, or figuring out a work-life balance. By the way, about 14 minutes into the show, I used the term mirroring, but I could have elaborated further. Please see the episode description for a more thorough explanation and for the ladies' bios. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So the, the four of us have attended the last two ADTA conferences together. And it seems like once we're gathered with all these amazing DMTs from around the world, we really feel such a great sense of belonging. But at the same time, we tend to have a lot of feelings come up about our own identity and worth as DMT professionals. So I wanted to ask you all, how have you struggled and or achieved to find your identity since entering the field? Hmm. I know. It's a, it's a brain scratcher. Good, good start. I guess I, I can I can start this one off. I've really struggled with finding my identity in the field. I've had a few different jobs in the past four years. And at my first job, I got really burnt out really quickly. And it took me a little while to get over that. And I think a big part of finding my identity has been making sure that I have adequate support. And like being able to just do the work and not get too much in my head or not get too stressed or not feel like I'm taking it home with me without an outlet. And that's been really, really important, firstly. And then I think also because I've worked with a bunch of different populations, it's been pretty informative to figure out how I work with different people from working in a nursing home to an LGBTQ facility to now working with individuals with disabilities. It's kind of just what do I bring as the common thread that no matter how I alter my methods or my techniques or modulate my energy to suit a certain group or individual, you know, what, what's constant that I show up with. But that being said, I'm definitely still figuring out who I am as a dance therapist every day. And it's really an ongoing process. Yeah, I'll add to that. I think too, for me, um, it's also been a little bit of letting go of expectations. Like when I started out, my idea of what dance movement therapy was or who I would be as a dance movement therapist isn't necessarily what it is now. So I think it's been a process of 
being okay that what it looks like or what my life looks like as a dance movement therapist isn't necessarily what I started out thinking it would be. I'll add to that lastly. I think for me, the biggest lifesaver in these early years uh, as a DMT has been really allowing myself to trust my instincts. And when I am confronted with situations or difficult sessions where I feel a little bit at a loss, I just try to return to my ability to trust myself and that I can do the best I can for my clients in that moment. And it might not be perfect, but it's where we're at in that moment. Yeah, it sounds like both you, Sarah, and Winnie, and Jamie, too, are talking about a very self-forgiving approach has been really important in building your identity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, I, but it's difficult. <laughs> yes. It doesn't always feel very self-forgiving, but that's the constant goal for me, at least, is to remember to go easy on myself because I, I often have really high expectations and then get pretty quickly disappointed and have to dial it back and, and remind myself where I am and what I'm doing and that, you know, it's okay to be in this place and it's okay to be four years out of school and still figuring it out and to own what I do know and what I don't know. So that brings me to my next question about setting expectations for yourself and also this inevitable comparing ourselves to more seasoned professionals and wondering where you Mm -hmm. feel you fit in amongst the more seasoned professionals. Yeah, or you mentioned that we've all been to a conference together, and I think that is probably where I feel it the most. I've really looked at my training and journey as a dance movement therapist as sort of school and internship was conception Mm. and just being an incubation. And then the finishing of like commencing and thesis was sort of birth. And then the first job, like actually being out in the field and working full time to some capacity and being actually in the job is sort of like growing up and going from childhood to young adult. So I try to remember that at the conferences and when I'm around the more seasoned professionals and dance movement therapists and just to remember that I'm still learning and learning every day and being patient and kind to myself about that and just knowing, okay, this is this is where I'm at as a dance movement therapist today or right now. And try to remind myself that those who have come before me and who are presenting more or have like private practices established a lot of those individuals have also been in the field for, it varies, but the people that I'm looking to are in the field for 20 plus years. So just to remind myself that I have time. I think she nailed it on the head with that one. (laughs) I was thinking, I was like, yep, I do the same thing. It's like, great, you have have all your life. (laughs) Okay. Um, how do you assert your identity at your clinical settings and what are some challenges? <laughs> There's definitely challenges. Yeah, so now we're talking about kind of broadening 
our identity, not just in the face of DMT professionals, but also amongst other mental health professionals. And even, you know, yeah. in, in your settings, you might have other types of staff there yeah. as well. Well, for me, I found it really helpful to remember in any situation just to keep the patients or my clients first. So if we're talking about being amongst other mental health clinicians, whether it's social worker, psychiatrist, or behavioral person, if I am advocating for the patient or my client and I remember that what I'm saying or speaking up about or communicating is really advocating for the person that I'm treating. First and foremost, it's rarely hard to argue with that. And I always have to remind myself that on the body-mind information, I'm always going to know best. I know that a lot of the other disciplines don't really train with the body and mind. So what I'm talking about, they may not get, but if it's in service of the patient first, it's a little bit difficult to challenge that or say no to that. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. That's very similar to what my experience has been. I've noticed actually that I've become a much more outspoken advocate for my work and my field at my current placement because of certain draws to advocate for my clients and that more times than not, that is accepted and I'll, I'll get a lot of yeses to certain opportunities because people want to, we're all on the same team, right? So they may not understand where I'm coming from or the modality I'm using to get there, but we're all working towards serving the client and that's a common goal. So that really helps to bridge the gap a lot. Um. I try to really make it clear when I'm starting at a new site that dance movement therapy is primarily a psychotherapy and really try to explain how the psychotherapeutic rewards of movement and dance so that other professionals can relate on that level. So even if they can't fully relate with the body knowledge, they can at least relate with the benefits, the mental health benefits that we bring to the table. Do you have an example of that? I, I think I'm asking because I, I, anyone who's listening to this, I'd want them to think that that's an approach they might be comfortable taking and maybe mm-hmm. they can get some guidance of how do you do that? You know, how do you meet the other professionals that way? I have well, a thought I, around that. Oh, but I think a lot of this job and being able to advocate for the field and what your position is, there is a lot of teaching involved. So if you're on a treatment team or you're trying to, like Sarah said, start at a new place, there is a lot of education involved and just being able to figure out how to translate the DMT vocabulary into, if you're at a hospital, a medical model, or where I'm at is a recovery model. And knowing that, yeah, you are going to have to explain to people what dance movement therapy is. Yeah. Yeah. I think something that I've experienced with that that has helped a ton is when other colleagues of mine who are not dance therapists see the work that I'm doing with certain clients 
and see the relationship that I have with those clients. Mm -hmm. They might not understand how we get there, but they can see the progress that we make. Mm -hmm. And that starts a discussion of what methods are you using? What methods am I using? How can we share? Mm -hmm. How can we generalize some of these methods of connecting to people so that it's not one person who has a special touch, but that it's everyone understands to approach this individual in a certain way. And just getting that dialogue started so that we can collaborate interdisciplinarily, mm-hmm. that has been really, really helpful in in my experience. Right. I'm even thinking about, for example, explaining mirroring. Jamie, when you said how we can explain just connecting the way that we connect to our patients or our clients. I think we can explain mirroring in a way that that can be understood by others and matching affect or matching body language, matching body shape, whatever. Matching tone of voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those things make such a huge difference. and, And we know that of course, but they're so powerful as tools in the work. And I think those things can be um, relatively easily explained. It's making me thinking about in-services or being able to hold like a staff workshop so that your colleagues are experiencing what it is you're doing with the clients. So if words can't really explain it or they're not really able to hear the words that you're trying to say, to explain your work, then at least they've experienced it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've found that providing experientials as workshops versus, you know, PowerPoint is so much more powerful and it's an experience that sticks with the people who are part of it. Yeah. So it is great when we can explain and feel understood and valued, but I'm wondering how do you confront when you are misunderstood and feel undervalued as a professional at your job? It's frustrating, definitely. I remember um, I started a dance movement therapy program at a school in New York for kids who are suffering from disabilities, medical illnesses. And I faced a lot of criticism and doubt when I started the position. And I remember in the beginning, it made me feel really frustrated and kind of terrible. (laughs) But to Jamie's point, talking about the relationship building aspect of our profession, I found that as time went on and my relationship with my students was so strong that other members of the community really started to value me and what I do because they were seeing the results. And that really was what kind of changed their opinion of dance therapy over time. And they could see that there was value to the work that we were doing. But it's hard to feel like you're not getting the support, especially when you're the only dance therapist there. It's like a parallel process of as you build the rapport with your patients, it helps you build rapport and trust your co-staff. Yeah, yeah. Even if you can't necessarily get to do it in service or a workshop, folks start to see the little nuggets that you bring to the therapeutic work. And so 
I'm hearing like it kind of goes hand in hand and our conversations making me realize that, you know, the more you can talk about your work, the more that they'll see your work with the clients and hopefully they'll be able to sort of cherish that a little more and value it more. I concur. (laughs) (laughs) I concur as well. (laughs) I concur as well. Um, Sarah, I really liked your example and it sounded like it took some time. Do any of you have experiences with a sudden interaction where you felt really discounted? Like for me at my, my second year internship, I worked at a, a therapeutic school where I ran DMT groups within the educational program. And one of my in one of my classes, one of the teachers asked if I could provide more structured groups like Duck Duck Goose. Huh. I was really put on the spot there and nothing had happened to me like that before. I felt really devalued in that moment, really misunderstood, and I wasn't sure how to confront it. I eventually, I think a day or two later, went back and really just explained my point of view and my goals in the more loosely structured sessions that I provided, which I think was Mm -hmm. the issue that was, that was making this teacher nervous. Mm -hmm. And and it was fine after that. I, at least it seemed like it was on the surface. He seemed to understand, Mm -hmm. but I'm just wondering if any of you had experiences like that, where it felt like on the spot, just absolutely totally. Yeah. Jamie. Yeah, I um the the loudest thing that comes to my mind is actually a day long workshop that I did um actually in collaboration with an art therapist a few years ago and they had all read a graphic novel and were finding creative ways to process it and discuss how it spoke to issues of adolescence and we were invited to come in and do an art and dance therapy collaborative workshop for the day with these uh, high school students and just try to examine issues of identity at that age in adolescence. And I remember at one point we had, we had four groups and after the first group, which we thought went quite well and we were very proud of it, the facilitator of the entire workshop approached us and said we weren't doing enough and she didn't see enough movement from the students and basically offered several ideas of how we could restructure mm-hmm. our programming and our interventions. And and we were both really disappointed. And at first it, it made us question ourselves and the work that we were doing and was it good enough and, and was she right? And it it took a moment of stepping back and taking a few breaths and feeling into kind of that intuition of, no, what we're doing is powerful and it's not a performance and it's not work that is here for you to see. You didn't realize, but that's not what you asked for. And when you brought us in, that's, that's not what we came to do. And, and we did have to address it afterwards and talk about, you know, how we, we thought that our expectations were a little bit different from hers. And we tried to, as gracefully as possible, explain the work that, that we were doing and, and what our motives were and what we thought we were seeing as opposed to what she 
asked us for. And, you know, she, she did listen to us and she, she seemed to understand it in the end and it, it seemed okay. But I remember feeling very discouraged following that for a while um, mm-hmm. and having to do a lot of processing with that coworker and that um, colleague and, and in my support circles, because it, it felt really disappointing to feel micromanaged by someone who didn't necessarily understand the work that I was trying to do. Yeah. This is making me think of a few examples. Um, but in my full-time job, I'm thinking about like on a, on a hospital unit running groups and having nurses or other disciplines not quite understand what I'm doing inside of the room. So also finding time to go talk to someone to be really clear about what I need to run my group or the work and then to be able to say and ask for what it is that I need as simple as like, you know, if you need to meet with someone, please knock on the door first before opening the door because that is something that I do run into a lot. Luckily, I'm on a unit where I think our unit chief really respects what I do and the creative arts therapist. So if you have leadership that is behind you, then it kind of will set the example and model for the rest of your colleagues and coworkers. But I've also had to do things really concrete and really definitive, like turn the TV off and take the remote into the room with me so that no one else can turn the TV back on. Yeah. Respecting our boundaries and how Mm -hmm. valuable the work is that it would be quite an interruption to be having some sort of disruption in the middle of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's also something that I just thought of is that it's it's usually just misunderstanding, right? It's someone who or a system that doesn't understand what we do entirely. And so that going back to educating is so important. And thinking of another example recently where I had a coworker who usually seems to understand the work that I do as a DMT very well and is very supportive and didn't understand that I was running a private group in a room that was closed off and brought another client to watch the group as an audience member outside the door. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a client that I also work with and have a very close relationship with but it disrupted the, the, the middle of the group. And I had to then address with that client why he wasn't involved in this particular group and how, you know, it might make the other group members uncomfortable to have an audience today. And, and she had such great intentions because he was expressing that he wanted to dance, but he wasn't in dance that day. And, and so it was this kind of moment where I had to then address it and say, you know, I, I know you had great intentions, but this is actually what I was intending to do. This was my goal for this particular group. And in the future, I'd like to avoid having audience members for dance therapy. So I'm going to switch. I'm going to go on to the next question. What is one thing you really wish you had more of in terms of resources and support in the field? I can think of one thing. Well, two things, but (laughs) while I'm out in the field, for me, I've come up against wishing there were other dance movement therapists or more dance movement therapy connection at my site or out in the work. Even if it's if I'm on a team with different creative arts therapists and even amongst the creative arts therapists, I can sometimes still feel like 
you know, you don't really understand what I'm, what I'm talking about or where exactly where I'm coming from. We probably speak the same language, but we're talking different dialects. And I think it's just a matter of if it's, if it's not there, finding a way to create it. And if it's, if that's not possible on site or at your job, then finding ways to create that dance movement therapy connection and support outside of your job. So that either way, I am held and I am heard as a dance movement therapist by another dance movement therapist. Yes. I think Winnie said that perfectly. Yes. That was so perfect. Um, I would add one other thing also for me. I, I don't know many other dance therapists who are working with my specific population of clients um, or who have worked with my specific population of clients. And I definitely wish that I knew of more dance therapists with this experience and that I had some sort of community um, to, to process some of the work because it feels, it feels very foreign to what a lot of the other DMTs that I know are doing. And sometimes it feels hard to discuss the work that I'm doing in the context of the goals that I have, as opposed to the goals that we might have at her site. Mm-hmm. And so it can be challenging for me sometimes to, you know, want more support around certain issues and, and not, not be sure about how to work with certain individuals and just to not feel connected to other dance therapists who have that experience as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And I can relate to those things that you both said is that I I wish there was easier or more access to a community where you can kind of like categorize where you're working at in the moment Like, I know when I started my position as the director of the creative arts therapy department at my current facility, I reached out to the NICAT listserv, and I think I inquired if there were any other creative arts therapists in general in my position and how they adjusted and just general advice, and I actually got no response, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, But it would have been Mm -hmm. great if I could find a way to easily connect to Mm -hmm. other dance therapists who are in management or leadership positions yeah well maybe or this podcast will start some of that i'm hoping yeah, <laughs> come, come find us dance therapist <laughs> this is a call to help <laughs> call to action a call to support mm-hmm. yes as many resources as i guess it seems like we have i, I think we are lacking a little bit And I don't know if that's just people leading such busy lives Mm -hmm. because our jobs take up so much time and there's other things that we want to do in life. Or I don't know if it's just the lack of access or knowing how to access this connection. I think it's probably... Sorry. I think it's both. (laughs) I'm thinking also the job itself takes a lot of energy. Um, so when your work day is done and maybe your support time, your meeting or supervision meeting is done offsite and then your decompression time is done, (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
that's not a lot of hours left over. <laughs> so, right. so then balance like work life and personal life and just to find the balance. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both of everyone in it who are probably feeling a, a lot of the same things and not really then being able to like try to find a, a group or to create a group or, you know, make more room to make more connection. Sometimes it's, there is the need to just have the downtime and just to rest and they'll sort of, or at least I find that I need that. Um, and to just sort of not process for a while. Yeah. I would say that's a really tricky part of finding your identity in DMT is the balance between processing and finding support and also just laying back on the couch and watching Netflix for hours, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. like, you know, yeah, you need yeah. that, but you also know you need the support from others and how much is too much and how much do I need to separate myself from the work and what's the best way? What's the most effective way? Is this helping me or harming me? And it's such a, mm-hmm. it, it's so much trial and error and so much figuring out, which is of course really helpful in the end and figuring yourself out and what you need. Yeah. 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 And I think Winnie also made such a good point with, you know, we, we have a limited amount of time in the week and, you know, we can set up so many supports for ourselves and have work and support. And, you know, at the end of the day, you, you have a certain amount of time left and you have to figure out how to balance that and, and what you prioritize that makes you work and makes you function at your best. And that's a hard balance to find. I'm, I'm certainly still working on it. Yeah. I think too, it's, it's different. Like what I need now in sort of decompression time or my rituals before I leave my job site are very different now than my first year of work. Mm, yeah. Um, so that's the other thing too is if you're doing the self care and always checking in with yourself, I think that will sort of shed light on where you you yourself are at and what you need. And you know, maybe today I need to go to the gym, but maybe tomorrow I'm just gonna have to be on the couch and watch Netflix. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're really advertising Netflix here. Yeah. <laughs> or Hulu. Or TV. Uh, or, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, or maybe you should like get a cut from one of those I know, companies. I know. <laughs> Shameless um, plug. But yeah, that's that's a huge. And I guess too to like realize, hey, you know what? It's okay that I I can let that part go, like that ritual or that sort of pattern or support from my first year of work or even return to something. It's just always sort of a continuous checking in with myself to figure out like, what do I need? Where am I, where am I at? So, and then finding the support and implementing or scheduling something that is going to help me with that or being, or being able to say, Oh, you know what? I don't need that anymore. I'm going to go to every other week or once a month. I don't need it every week now. Great point about constantly reassessing where you're at. Yeah. We're getting kind of close to the end. And I think we've collected a lot of great advice and personal experiences for 
other young professionals or other aspiring DMTs and maybe even giving some new perspective and open and honesty for the more seasoned professionals as we've been calling them. Mm. Um, And I guess my last question would be what is one piece of advice that you would give to other DMTs who are just entering the fields, whether they're still in school or within their first few years outside and in the world of, of DMT? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start with that. I think that the concept of self-care cannot be emphasized enough in the early stages of training as a DMT. I know for me in graduate school, self-care was not something that I focused on. <laughs> and I really think it kind of came back to haunt me a little bit. And I think taking time out for yourself, dancing for yourself, doing yoga, even being in therapy, just doing those small daily rituals for yourself that remind you of who you are beyond just this professional identity you're trying to build is really, really critical. And it's really intense going into this field and it's difficult to separate from our clients sometimes. If if you're not careful, I know from experience there were many times in my both in graduate school and also in my career where I have felt very overwhelmed by the needs of my clients. And I've learned that taking care of myself has to be the first priority because if I'm not well, I cannot be well for them. For me, I kind of remind myself that I I'm, I'm, need to live by example. And if I have certain expectations for my clients, I need to fulfill those expectations for myself first. Also, being in therapy is also really critical when you're on this journey because you're getting to know parts of yourself that may be new to you. <laughs> and it's important to get the to process that so that you can do this job well into the future. I'll just add to that. One of the things that I found really helpful that I've learned along the way is that whatever I am facilitating for my clients, that I make sure that I'm giving back to myself, whether that's throughout my whole day, as small as when I'm setting up a group, what song do I want to listen to for the 30 seconds it's taking me to set up the room or just finding those little times throughout my day to give back to myself because otherwise I definitely feel like when I'm not doing that I can definitely sort of feel the hit of the overflow and then it just takes more work and a little bit more concentration and focus to sort through what all of that counter-transference is and then just being okay with like you know what I need to get off the unit I need to take a break right now And I I would definitely say, for sure, individual therapy. I remember one of the first things I ever learned about dance movement therapy was someone said to me, you cannot sit with someone else's dark stuff if you don't first sit with your own dark stuff. And I've definitely found that to be true as I navigate my first one to three years. Yeah, absolutely. I think also making sure that you remember to move which I I have had 
periods for myself, I know, where I become very resistant to movement in various forms and whatever form it takes when I return to it, it always brings me back to myself, whether if it's authentic movement or taking a dance class or doing like movement in the bathroom at work for five seconds before I leave for the day that could look like throwing a toddler's tantrum, like anything that you can do to reconnect your body, finding active ways to restore your energy and recharge your batteries are so important. Oh, and one more. Sorry. Um, Go ahead. As I feel like I've established some supports now and I'm now getting that part of me fed, the thing that I'm struggling with most to be kind and have patience with yourself because it's easy to get down on yourself when you feel like you're still a novice and when you feel like it's not good enough. But the reminder of it can be good enough and and that's enough and you're enough and to have that compassion for yourself and not just for your clients. Yeah, I resonate so much with everything that you all said. And I just wanted to add my own little thing. I think Sarah said a little bit of this, that you feel like you have to have a life outside of DMT and your identity outside of your dance therapist identity. And that is so huge for me. Sometimes I do get caught up in comparing myself to others in the field or just feeling like a novice. I I feel like if I feel that way, that in life, I'm a novice or in life, I'm not excelling as much as I want to. But I've set out to learn a lot of other things outside of the career that make me feel successful and achieving great things like learning new skills, Um, like I'm trying to learn Spanish right now, trying to learn the drums, Um, signed up for a Spartan race. So having other goals in life that are pretty detached, but also like Jamie said, still ways that are very connected to myself and my body. Yeah. I would just say, if you really love the work, keep doing it keep finding new ways to be in it just because the job title doesn't say therapeutic rehabilitation or rec therapist or creative arts therapist doesn't mean you're not doing the work. Sometimes we have to be creative about our job placements. So just keep going. Mm. Well, this was really awesome. I've been smiling this entire time because your answers have been so (laughs) insightful. And I'm just thinking about people listening to this and really connecting and relating. And that's how I've been feeling this whole time. So I think that this has been so great. And I'm really, really grateful. Yeah, I was just I was just reflecting on the fact that I've been smiling for the past I don't know how long. It's just so nice to feel so joined in this place and get to just be discussing it with you guys. Yes, I feel really held. Oh. <laughs> if you are feeling like you're past a certain point but not quite yet at another reach out to your colleagues from your class or your sort of growth level and just form something and uh, create something that where you guys can 
talk about where you're all at together. Like yeah. Doing now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having us, Ori. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and being open about your stories. And you all sound like you've done this before. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> my whole life Every is an interview. My, yeah. <laughs> Every day is my internal monologue. <laughs> Winnie, why are you doing this right now? <laughs> yeah. Is this, what do I need right now? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're going to say... I'm like, let's find a way to close. <laughs> I feel like we need to all take some like deep breaths together or something. <laughs> I wish we could hold hands. Let's virtually like- hold hands. Feel each other's <laughs> energies. <laughs> I'm holding my phone. <laughs> uh, and uh, say goodbye to whoever's listening. Goodbye, whoever's listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.